it is a fantastical tale. I think it's uh, incredibly well rendered, and there are some real nuggets of absolute joy in there. They talk a good talk, and they're all for having a go at Bilbo for being a bit useless, but from what I can tell, they're not that much better themselves. They're not exactly a special forces unit, are they? I love, by the way, the idea that Gollum is a good example for the aspiring businessman on the rise. Get rich or die trying would be a great tagline for this book. It shouldn't be The Hobbit there and back again. It should be The Hobbit, get rich or die trying. Get rich. (laughs) Welcome to Shark Liver Oil. This is a podcast uh, for people who love books, want to hear more about their favourite ones, but without any of that pretentious stuff that critics sometimes come out with. Uh, I'm Matt, and with me is... I'm Dave, hello. Right, so basically what we do on this is we take a book, and we go on a bit of a journey through it, chapter by chapter, we talk about you know what we find great, awful, shocking, funny, absorbing, you know, that's kind of thing about what's going on. Uh, we'll shout at characters who make stupid decisions, you know, applaud our hero's finest moments and appreciate some of the amazing sort of feelings and moments you get which you can only really get from books compared to anything else we as ever always welcome any feedback from you guys as well if you've got any thoughts on the books or on the cast or on any suggestions of books for us to do in the future all you need to do is email sharkliveroyalpodcast at gmail.com that's sharkliveroyalpodcast at gmail.com all right, so today's book is The Hobbit. We're going to do this probably in three parts. And part one today, we're going to go from chapters one to six, which is starting off, obviously, at Bilbo's house and going right the way to the point where they end up on that cliff with all the eagles. And uh, I think just a, a bit of a health warning before we start. Um, this is what well, this isn't. This isn't a you know deep critical thesis on Tolkien. Um, but it is sort of a more knockabout, tumble through the best bits of one of the greatest fantasy or children's books of all time. I think is it fair to say that we're just treating uh, one of one of the greatest books ever written with a sense of profound disrespect, or, or a sense of just wide-eyed childlike wonder? We could you could say. <laughs> so, Dave, when did you first come to this book, and how much do you know about it? Well, it's interesting because my dad's a massive Tolkien fan. He doesn't read books very much, but he loves Tolkien to the point where he's he's read the Silmarillion. Like he's got the Silmarillion with notes in the margin, mind you. That's that's where my dad is on this. So <laughs> when I was a kid, he kind of gave me the Hobbit. He was like, "You should read this. It's brilliant." Um, and I made the mistake of reading it when I was coming down with a really bad fever. So I remember the first couple of chapters like really vividly. And then after that, it's just all got mixed up with this kind of, like, nightmarish illness. (laughs) So I hadn't actually read this until sort of late last year. I mean, it kind of, obviously, you can't help but compare it to The Lord of the Rings. And it, it definitely has a much simpler idea of scope. But at the same time, actually, it's got quite a long footnote explaining how, like, the words that they used relate to each other in the language and like and he's got a note on the runes like the alphabet that they used and stuff and it's, hmm. it's all totally fictional you know but he's clearly like he started in this place where he wants to write about our language and then makes this makes this whole kind of story up yeah so let's go to the first chapter then chapter one an unexpected party and the line which is pretty famous in its own right now the very first line of the book 
in a hole in the ground lived a hobbit. Well, you've laid out your stall, haven't you? Yeah, and apparently, do you know how we? This is not about drive-by shootings in in LA. This is a hole in the ground and a hobbit. Ex- exactly, and do you know how he, he, he how this this was the first line of obviously which he came up with, and mm. he he came up with it when he was marking work apparently, and he was just bored, and he <laughs> he scrawled in like on a, on a blank sheet of paper in a hole in the ground lived a hobbit, and it all so he said he didn't even know what a hobbit was at that point, but it, it all sort of went on from there. I love that because because obviously what it's led to is um is a wonderful kind of uh a book really enjoyed by millions of people around the world um but honestly if you were having a boring night at work and you wrote in a hole in the ground oh, that's kind of interesting that's more interesting than marking these papers there lived excellent carrying on a <laughs> hobbit like you can imagine him sort of having a, taking a good long look at the glass of wine he's brought to his desk with him and sort of going I should probably lay off that. <laughs> I can just imagine. I can just imagine his, his wife coming in, looking over his shoulder, going, "What's a hobbit?" And he's just going, "I have literally no idea." <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, just like that sort of kind of wide-eyed whispering. I haven't got a clue. I think I these think papers may be driving me insane. <laughs> so we're introduced to. Uh, to Bilbo Baggins, who is the protagonist, who's the main character in the story, and th- one of the first scenes is Gandalf turns up, the uh, the wizard, and he, he there's a bit of sort of Gandalf sort of feeling out Bilbo a bit, just getting a sense of his character. You get the feeling that Gandalf's just thinking about whether or not this guy's going to be up to to the to the task in hand, and uh, he obviously decides he will be, and this is a little bit rude of him. Um, he just after Bilbo goes inside and they've had this exchange, he he puts a mark on his door. He basically vandalizes his door. Yeah. Uh, he puts a mark on it, which basically says "party over here" for the yeah. for the dwarves before they turn up. Yeah, and it is a bit sort of. I remember when I first read this book, and everybody talked about Gan- when I was a kid, and everyone was like, "Oh, Gandalf, yeah, really good character, Gandalf, good guy." And then in the first chapter, he's just an absolute tool. He is. He's like kind of you begged my pardon three times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not only do I have power over you know time and space and movement and magic eagles, but also I'm going to pick apart your grammar. He's <laughs> <laughs> like every pretentious schoolmaster you've ever seen. <laughs> I know, and I remember reading it and being like, "He's a twat." Why do I? Why is this supposed to be a good person? Is this a book about how people who appear to be twats are actually lovely? Because I don't believe that. Yeah, and then he goes on to do this thing where he's like sort of vandalizes Bilbo's door. Everybody, get, you know, should there happen to be any marauding treasure hunters wandering through this village, here's where you get all of your food, sort of thing. <laughs> and I, I just get, I get a massive kick out of this image of like this kind of very affectionately sketched sort of little Englander character, which is really what Bilbo Baggins is. Hmm. Um, you know, in this kind of likes nothing more than his hearth and his pipe. And, and you know, point of bit or whatever, and um, uh, kind of having to deal politely with fourteen, fourteen massively bearded ancient dwarf dudes with battle axes turning up and going, "I'll have some beer, please." Yeah, thanks. I mean, it it turns out further than that. This this marking on the door it does. I think it means that expert treasure hunter lives here, um, yeah. and that's that's what that's what treasure hunters decide to do in in these parts is to put a mark on it to say. In the oh, same way, we'd if... have a butcher or a candlestick maker. I don't know what 
part of the world I'm thinking of here. But I'm uh, Hobbiton, you know, presumably. Yeah, <laughs> you'd have a treasure hunter mark as well. Uh, so yeah, the, the rowdy dwarves turn up. We have a couple of sing songs for the rest of this chapter. Really, it's it's plan exposition exposition where they go over this is what we're going to do this is the plan we're, we're going to go over we're going to cross these mountains go over to this place where a dragon's dwelling where we you know all those dwarves used to live quite happily with our treasure and we're going to get the treasure back we're not they're a bit hazy on the details there's a there's a secret door <laughs> which they're going to send send bilbo through as a thief and you know he'll make it all better somehow there's not really go into exactly how that's going to work but i think it's more there's so much to take in straight away the fact that you know this little hobbit who like you say his main interest is different ales a bit of gardening and maybe a, a walk at the weekends is going to become this this fearless treasure hunter and the funny thing about bilbo is he he it's his it's as much as anything else it's his stubborn sort of desire to prove people wrong which actually pushes him into it he, he gets really offended by the fact that one of when one of them is talking about him they describe him as the the little fellow bobbing and puffing on the mat when they arrived and they're quite disparaging about him and he <laughs> thinks well I'll, I'll prove you all wrong then i am a great treasure hunter i'll you know i'll tell you that and i'll, I'll find the means of becoming it later on and he's bananas, isn't it? Because, like, he's he's not a great treasure hunter. He is a little sort of roly-poly beast. Um, <laughs> he's never stolen a damn thing in his life. And yet, it's cuckoo bananas. And you also have to wonder, don't you, about the sort of fiscal sort of um, canniness of these dwarves who are, like, ruled by this desire to get their property back and who, nonetheless mount an expedition against a mythical beast which is basically made out of fire <laughs> and try and invade a mountain using 13 of them and the first guy whose house happens to have this particular mark on the door i think it's a bit i think that the decision to take along bilbo i think you're right as far as they they've called it right the dwarves when they say that he's he's a bit of a you know bobbing and puffing on the mat puffed up little roly poly man but it's just the belief in in Gandalf. If Gandalf says this is the guy we need, yeah, he, he's their ace card, isn't he? Because you're yeah. right, the thirteen of these guys wouldn't stand a chance against this dragon. But they think we've got a we've got we've got a guy on our side here. If we keep him on side in Gandalf, he yeah. you know he, he he'll help us and he'll sort us out. I was going to say it's an interesting one with Gandalf, isn't it? Because you know you, you've got this character in, in Lord of the Rings is this sort of like existential samurai. Who's like like an archangel, basically, kind of like striding around the place, you know, kind of almost undefeatable force for good. Um, and in this one, he's he's just helping some dwarves get their gold back, and it's much less epic. But the idea of trying to make it epically important and it's about good versus evil and the end of the way, it's not. It's not. It's about a bunch of dudes whose forefathers were mugged going to get their stuff back yeah it's 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 the it's the shocking difference between a you know the culmination of thousands of years battle between good and evil and a lot of dwarves want the gold back from a noisy neighbor he's drinking absolutely right (laughs) okay so next up roast mutton and this is uh the first bit uh (laughs) bilbo wakes up and he's almost well he's very late uh because he's he he kind of sleeps in 
Mm-hmm. Um, and he's, it, I mean, the dwarves haven't been particularly clear on what time to get up to, in, in his defense, but he, <laughs> he's late. And so Bilbo gets up, gets out, and he gets to the meeting point just in time. This is a fun adventure. The first big action set piece it comes in this chapter, and it's when they come across this trio of trolls. But the thing I liked about the troll, the, the three trolls are sitting around the campfire talking and the great fun i thought the um the loutish you know this kind of yeah, back yeah. and forth really and the something that struck me uh, in uh, obviously this is a product of its time the book being a product of its time um he gets across loutish with no swearing there's there's no f in yeah. this and f in that yeah, i know? was gonna say that actually um but the well the flip side of that though is that but he does it by making them the only characters in the book who don't talk in nice middle class receipt pronunciation English, mm. um, and and so there's a, there is a little like I always kind of sense that a little bit in in like I mean so he's he's an Oxford don right, and you there's just a little bit of it where he's like sort of I'm going to have them dropping their H's and I'm going to have them missing off the G's on the end of their words and this is how you will know that they are degenerates. Now, I don't know whether that's how Tolkien thought. Maybe it's a little bit of sort of check your privilege. So the, B- Bilbo is the guy who, comes, who who ends up coming across these trolls after being sent out to sort of investigate uh, by the by the pretty much cowardly dwarves. It's, I don't know if you've ever witnessed, because so I am I I am one of two brothers, so I don't really have this dynamic. But I've witnessed in in like other families where there are three or more brothers close in age the little one is always sent to do the terrible work and it's absolutely that isn't it is these these dwarves who have massive battle axes and who have presumably you know oceans of combat experience and so on and they go well the little fella in the in the waistcoat with the the gold frogging on the pocket i think he's the one we send in against the trolls yeah everybody agreed <laughs> yeah and we're agreed that this isn't cowardly as well right yeah it's just good tactics yeah yeah right send him in <laughs> yeah and Bilbo decides that he he, look, he sees these these three massive, dangerous, loutish-looking trolls, and his first thought is isn't just get away. Well, it kind of is, but he also thinks, well, I can't go back empty-handed. I've got to get something, and so he, he decides to steal something to you know show that he's such a great burglar. And here's something which is it just happens, and then we move on. And I want to just just draw attention to it because i was like what um he tries to steal the wallet and the wallet talks <laughs> and then we move on yeah. as if that's just that what what happens in this just, what's Matt, going on here why is there you, a talking wallet do, do you not have a talking wallet is, uh, is cause... it like uh, is it some kind of like elven burglar alarm or something i don't know <laughs> that's amazing um i have no idea uh from where the talking wallet comes but um i don't know buy yours at argos this christmas i don't know do you know what i would love though is if the if the talking wallet in question was um jules winfield's talking wallet from pulp fiction (laughs) and it actually said (laughs) bad "Bad motherfucker Because that would be incredible, wouldn't it? I mean, you could sort of see it as well for the with the trolls, you know, that kind of like that gangster style sort of thing. <laughs> I'd love it if if Bilbo had removed it and it wasn't a talking wallet and he just flipped it over and he just read it and he went, oh, "Bad motherfucker," and then <laughs> and then they turned around. 
<laughs> that, you see, that would be a much more plot reasonable way of doing it, wouldn't it? Than having having the wallet taught shocking. I don't, I don't know what it the is. Sheltered hobbit. I, th- I mean, in a, in a world with you know trolls and goblins and all this other fantastic stuff, um, it's just the fact, just the talking wallet really really bugged me. I don't know why. <laughs> anyway. So the dwar- so Bilbo's caught, and then all the rest of the dwarves are caught, and the only one who puts up any sort of fight is Thorin. Um, I, I, yeah. think he, I think he whacks one of them in the face with a branch at some point. But, I mean, they talk a good talk, and they, they're, they're all for having a go at Bilbo for being a bit useless. But from what I can tell, they're not that much better themselves. They're not exactly a, a special forces unit, are they? They all end up getting thrown in sacks, and without, without the slightest bit of bother, a bit later on, they get grabbed by goblins, and no one seems to put up a fight there. And it just, it just, it's just constantly Gandalf pulling their ass out of the fire in this first few Actually, chapters. That might be an interesting count. Should we inaugurate that count for the book? The number of times when apparently badass dwarves end up being taken en masse yeah. without a fight. <laughs> Yeah, because there are actually several points throughout the book where that occurs. So this is this is this is one pansy ass dwarfs instance one yeah. occurs in uh, in chapter two of the Hobbit. I mean, I, there will be more. I haven't um, I, the in my reread. I have only read up to chapter seven, trying to keep it myself as fresh as I have been, as if I was almost coming to it for the first time again. I seem yeah. to remember when I read it long ago that they do equip themselves relatively well towards the end of the book, but at the moment. They are. They've they've got a nerve having to go at Bilbo for some of the yeah. some of the shit that gets that's getting pulled on them, and they're not <laughs> even able to deal with it. But anyway, the yeah. this is as we just alluded to ex- one of the many examples in the book of Gandalf pulling their ass out of the fire, where he, he uses yeah. his cunning to keep the trolls talking until the sun comes up. It's a really nice. Uh, it's a really nice idea, actually, isn't it? And it's a it's a great well, way for him to just 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 to show how. Um, how clever Gandalf is! It's not all about throwing, you know, flaming pine cones around. He can do the he can do the thinking stuff as well. After they, they defeat the tw- trolls, they uh, they head over to what effectively turns out to be an armory, which is their uh, the troll cave, and they get these fantastic elven weapons, which the trolls have stolen um, mm. from somewhere somewhere in the past. And I also like the this this line that Gandalf comes out with with why he disappeared and come back because this is another thing that he does all the time in this book he he runs off and then comes back at opportune moments to save them and uh, mm. Thorin asks him you know why did you go on and he says to look ahead he says what brought you back he said looking behind <laughs> so that's quite <laughs> that's that's a great like any any writer would kill to have thought of that because it is so beautiful and pithy and sums up not only the characters but the situation and it makes you laugh yeah and, and it, um it's great stuff it really is and it's classic gandalf it's it's cryptic without being cryptic and he just does a great <laughs> line in that doesn't he all the time yeah, that's very true it's, you can almost i mean there is a little bit of gandalf isn't there really where you can imagine anybody else trying to be sort of in any sense wise or slick or like weighty in a conversation and there's just a little bit of gandalf's manner which is just bitch please yeah yeah, you get the feeling no one else could get it. Even if they said that, no one else could get away with it. You know, if Bilbo had disappeared yeah. and Thorin said, Bilbo, where have you gone? He went, oh, I went on to look ahead. And why did you come back? Looking behind. He'd have gone, oh, fuck off, Bilbo. Get back on your horse. <laughs> <laughs> if you're not going to answer Wait, a simple sorry, question. Who, who the fuck are you? Half pint, <laughs> quarter pint. <laughs> so we move on to chapter three, which is called A Short Rest, aptly titled, because it's quite a short chapter. And it's it's mostly about... 
the elves. They they meet the elves for the first time. Um, well, Bilbo meets the elves for the first time, and uh, it's the thing that really struck me about this. One thing I really want to talk about is how different the elves come across compared to, I mean, especially the films, the Lord of the Rings films, mm. where they're much more playful and merry, and they've got this wisdom, but it's also they find everything quite funny about everybody else. And it's funny because in in the films, especially, they are this super serious, dour. You know, they all talk in very slow, deliberate sentences, and every they, you can't imagine you can't yeah. imagine anyone sitting around. You can't imagine them singing this song for a start. No, yeah, well, you know what you can't imagine is you can't imagine them sitting around after a meal and one of them letting off an enormous fart. Exactly. And four of the other ones just going, can't believe you did that, Legolas. That's unbelievable. You're a disgrace. Get out. Yeah. Yeah, Whereas think... these elves, you really can imagine doing that. Yeah, I think I remember one elf cracking a smile in three films in Lord of the Rings. And it, and it... it, was, quite a, it was quite a condescending film. If we don't count Legolas, who had that whole banter thing with the dwarf. But the whole point is that yeah. Legolas was like almost cast out from his people to go, go on, help those useless mortal wankers with their problems. And it's much... Yeah, you, you know, they're, they're, they are the kind of bearers of this unbearably po-faced kind of ethnically anal retentive kind of thing. You know yeah. what I mean? I mean, in the sense of like, you know, their ethnic identity is to be this kind of like uptight um, kind of uh, present. Yeah, I mean, yeah I, and the I, first I get... thing they do this time is they roll up and they've got like, you know, kind of... Um, ballads going on and stuff and it's it's all they're practically limericks yeah it's, it's really funny i mean I, I get why in in the in the lord of the rings especially they i understand this this concept that they they're carrying this enormous burden because the world is going to shit and and they know they really know it more so than any yeah. any other races and i get that but it, it's, it's just interesting that in this book it's you could almost read it as they they haven't they haven't reached that point yet and they're still quite cheerful That's and optimistic and they're all just sort of like well we're gonna live forever <laughs> yeah yeah everything's mint there is that yeah there is that carefree attitude that um that comes across which you think could come out of living forever um but the flip side of that appears in in the films where they they can just see these kind of disasters coming and the hopelessness of the situation more so than anybody else and it it's kind of a it's kind of a buzzkill for them it gets them down <laughs> <laughs> Got some really dying. <laughs> oh, you guys, Sauron. You know the reason I hate Sauron, right? It's not the end of end of sentient life as we know it. No, screw that. Do you know why it is? He kills my buzz. <laughs> my buzz. My precious buzz. And he kills the fucker. Totally you know what? I'm going to war. Anybody else going to war? I'm sick of this. <laughs> <laughs> I think part of the reason that evil came back into the world is that most of the elves ended up locking themselves in the rooms, listening to Morrissey and writing poetry. I think that's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> right. Anyway, um, that's enough ragging on the elves. We've definitely there's um... no, no such thing as too much ragging on the elves. Too elegant. <laughs> too elegant for their own good. The next chapter: uh, Overhill and Underhill, and this is where we yeah. we reach the Misty Mountains, and. The point, this bit where the mountain giants are throwing rocks at each other for a laugh, yeah. I absolutely yeah. love it. I think it's, inc- I think yeah. it's brilliant. Also, yeah. because every time there's a big thunderstorm now, I get that image, and I just yeah. think he's, this, this is where Tolkien's at his best, tying yeah. sort of the countryside and the land and nature to this fantastical element of his storytelling. And I just thought it was absolutely, superb. 
absolutely i couldn't agree with you more it's 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 powerful it's evocative it's imagery and again like i get a real kick out of it because it's not just tolkien having a bright idea like you you sense this like this he really feels like like this is how like the roots of language work you know this is where the word like uh, i mean i don't know this because i'm not a philologist but this this whole thing of like you can imagine the word thunder deriving from this idea of shit there's a giant over there and he's throwing rocks hmm. some of the guys who don't like it though they're gonna be the haters well the, <laughs> the, the, they're not loving it at all it's the it's throwing it down it's thunder and lightning there are massive giants throwing rocks around you don't want to be outside in this kind of weather and yeah. they, <laughs> this is one of the i want to come to one of the most what i think one of the funniest not entirely intentionally funniest lines in the book guys and this is when um philly and killy go off to find a cave and they come back and say we found a cave it's great and gandalf says have you thoroughly explored it and they're like yeah yeah of course we have and just what happens later in this chapter i just think that's hilarious because <laughs> <laughs> they're both going, yeah, and- don't worry about it yeah no problems with this cave it's safe it's lovely and dry definitely no orcs hanging around it's gonna be brilliant you sort of want there to be a scene later on when they're all reunited if Gandalf was, if there was just and then the next paragraph was, Gandalf stood slightly askance from the group, tapping his toe and looking at Philly and Killy with a certain amount of asperity, Philly and Killy whistled and examined the clouds with intent you know, <laughs> you just want there yeah. to be that kind of like naughty schoolboy moment of honest Gandalf, I thought I'd looked so, I know, I mean, my bad, hands in the air it, <laughs> it was us so, I mean, yeah, it turns out after they get into the nice dry cave and settle down for the night, it, it isn't particularly safe because it's actually the the, the new main entrance to, uh, to to this large goblin settlement. That, that's it as well, isn't it? The goblins are a significant race in Middle Earth, and this is their front door. <laughs> and you've still gone in and looked at their front door with presumably orky footprints all over it, and just gone. <laughs> I reckon this is it. <laughs> Yeah, hockey footprints, <laughs> and yeah, the, it's, it's also. I, th- I think in the, they actually do say there's a bit later on in the book where it turns out the the orcs have the, they had a different main entrance, and they used to sort of kill, you know, they used to prey on people and, and and other creatures there, and then people stopped going there, so they've they've created this new entrance up here. But still, you think, especially Gandalf would would have sort of be across stuff like that. He's their he's their recon guy, and he's pretty good at it. Um, yeah. But but anyway, you know, it's a it's it's a misstep, but it's not the first or the last that the dwarves have made. And that's true. The luckily Bilbo wakes up to shout, "Oh no, we're being ambushed, kidnapped!" And uh, <laughs> and Gandalf manages to react quickly enough, as he often does. But let's just. I mean, this is this is this is number two, Dave. None of the dwarves can put up any kind of resistance, <laughs> and they all get caught. Pansy ass dwarves, again. volume two. <laughs> yeah, um, absolutely cl- disgraceful. <laughs> so they get they're getting dragged along. Oh, can we just take a moment as well at this juncture to remember the ponies, which are passed <laughs> over relatively easily, but they are taken down into the depths to be devoured by the orcs and it's pretty horrific and they get a line and then they move on and forget about them but I felt it quite badly there 
that is sad and he does Tolkien does seem to be extremely keen just to have ponies be really convenient beasts of burden and then whenever you hit a bit of rocky ground it just goes and then they send the ponies away yeah you don't want to be a pony which in I'm this fairly world. certain is not what you're supposed to do with ponies <laughs> this bit is one of uh, one of several examples I think in the book where you know by contrast with some great line writing and some fantastic imagery and beautiful use of language and so on where I really feel like Tolkien is kind of phoning it in and it's by chance, Bilbo happens to wake up in the this, this split second where he could still make a difference, and without that, the plot would have ended right there. And there are probably two or three other points in the book where it's just like, and then, by good fortune, <laughs> the writer employed a plot device. <laughs> you know, you can imagine him writing it and his editor's bugging him for the final draft, and he's like, oh, I don't know. Um, oh... Bilbo woke up and Gandalf was brilliant as well and <laughs> goblins <laughs> um, it's yeah I, I, I don't know I didn't find it terribly um, I, I, I think it's a bit of a bum note really and it's a bum note mm. that happens more than once in the book but carry on so as the goblins are carting them off uh, to their fate they sing and we've got another song and I, I just I quite this is a good example of how um, Tolkien keeps it light for the kids by um, mixing humour and danger together. So the goblins have got them, they're in a ter- frightening position, but they're singing this kind of darkly funny song as well as they're carting them off. And it just, it's, it's a similar thing to like, you know, Roald Dahl, Charlie and Chocolate Factory, where you interweave a bit of humour into the danger just to not scare the kids too much. Well, and also because I think there's, you know, I think that, you know, there's, there is humour in dangerous situations. I like I like storytelling like that that isn't just like and then it all went to shit <laughs> shit 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 end of chapter and then everything was kind of funny 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 <laughs> you know like actually yeah. having the chops to kind of mix those things together I thought was I thought was really I really enjoyed that I thought this is this is you know no Dave they're brought before the Goblin King and. I mean, it's quite a tense scene for a while, and you think maybe there's a very slim chance that Thorin might be able to talk his way out of this and get them some kind of safe passage through, and then Thorin's sword's presented, which he took from the trolls, and the Goblin King just loses his shit over it. Mm. Um, But luckily, Gandalf appears again, and... He basically comes in and regulates, doesn't he? He goes absolutely <laughs> mental, and it's really, really. I mean, it's one of those again epic Gandalf moments, isn't it? Well, actually, what I was going to sort of touch on in, in this scene was that the bit, this bit where you think Thorin might talk him around, and but Thorin actually at this point and on many other points shoots himself in the foot by being all kinglier than thou. You know, it's a bit like ah, oh, you know, just tell him what he wants to hear. Yeah, yeah, we're lost. We're a band of marauding whatevers. We've lost everything, you know. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. We'll help you carry this from the to the other side of the mountain. Oops, there's the door. Run away. You know, yeah. like there's there's only ways you could do that without yeah. being like, I am here to chop goblins in half. I'm sorry, you're the great what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. There are, there are example a few examples where he's just he is a bit too proud for his own good, isn't he, Thorin? And this is a good a good example of that. Yeah. They so they they escape in the in in the carnage that ensues of the appearance of Gandalf. Brought by Gandalf as he turns up in his guise as fourteen times WrestleMania champion. Yeah, and I'd like to just give a mention. uh, What the the dwarf called Dory helps Bilbo, 
and um, mm. he's described in this scene as being a, a decent chap um, and he seems to stand out from the rest of them because a bit later on I don't know if uh, we're skipping ahead very slightly but when the when the wolves attack and they're trying to get up into the trees and Bilbo's mm. running around on his own at the bottom because he can't reach any branches it's it's Dory that goes back to help him again there. So there is mm. this connection here with this particular dwarf who seems to be looking out for Bilbo a bit more than the others. Um, you get the feeling a lot of the others just consider him, especially at this point, to be just a bit of a burden. So they try and make their escape, and it looks like they're going to get away, and they go into one of the darker areas of the cave, and the orcs go into stealth mode, and slip on soft <laughs> shoes which i assume is like the the nike max version of whatever whatever <laughs> whatever reality this for is. their orky footprint yeah to, to, to sort of stealth it up so they they creep up on the on the fleeing group then and i suppose ambush them yet yet again but everybody else gets away apart from bilbo which is where we leave the chapter do you know there was one other thing that i wanted to say about about the the feeling of the goblins this is one of the weird kind of consequences of having read and watched The Lord of the Rings before you read or watched um, The Hobbit, is that in this the goblins are a really credible enemy. Mm. You know, they're this kind. They are they are the sort of primary antagonists. Almost. You've got this whole group of nasty buggers with huge curvy swords under the mountain, and they're going to do you a mischief. And but in Lord of the Rings, they're sort of like these kind of snivelling drag along. You know, they're so crap that they have to be improved by being turned into orcs mm. Urukai, yeah. As answer. yeah 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 so like goblins goblins are kind of little you know weedy sneely you know snivelling little buggers and need to be improved in order to be really really imposing enemies whereas in this one we're supposed to be like oh no the great goblin's gonna eat thorin and with this idea of the great goblin the image that i had in my head when i first read it was just this sort of like slightly more rotund little kind of reprobate beast yeah. Should we move on to Riddles in the Dark? We will move on to Riddles in the Dark. Riddles in the Dark. So this is when we're introduced to one of the great characters of of all time, really, in Gollum. But uh, if we just roll back a bit, we we come to Bilbo where he's lost on his own. He comes to in this tunnel on his own, nobody around. He picks up this ring, which obviously has connotations for the future. And his first... The, the next thing he decides to do in this situation is spark up. He wants a smoke. So he, <laughs> he checks his pockets for tobacco. Well, he checks his pockets for... Um, is it old Toby he's smoking? I'm he basically there. searches his pockets for his pipe and something to smoke. And I, I wanted to ask you about this, actually, sticking with the tobacco thing. Is it is it tobacco or is it weed? Um <laughs> Because <laughs> later in, in the film, um, Sauron, yeah. uh, Saruman says to Gandalf, oh, your love of the halfling leaf has, has slowed your mind, which is the kind of thing that happens when you smoke too much dope. And <laughs> I love that kind of reading of it. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's tobacco. But I just love the idea of, of Bilbo being lost, going, oh, oh I want to get high. Oh, <laughs> just, I just I blaze I can't cope with this. I've got a... Oh. Has anybody got any marshmallows? I just, I really need to eat something. It would have been a, would have been a different novel, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, and then Gollum could turn up and be like, "Can I have a hit of that as well? We'll play riddles first. It, it all makes sense. <laughs> let's let's talk about yeah. Gollum. This is where Gollum turns up. He's this cold, clammy, sort of slimy, creepy, menacing yeah. character, and I just think he's really well drawn, and it really gets across. I remember the first time I read The Hobbit before. 
seeing the Lord of the Rings or reading anything else. It was my first introduction to Tolkien, and it made Gollum made a complete impression on me then, and I, I had this sort of creepy sense when he uh, it made me shudder when I read it. Well, and it's this idea of this kind of voice emerging out of the darkness. Like when I reread it, that really was kind of brought home to me is this idea of this this hobbit under a mountain in the dark. I mean, imagine doing that. You've been captured by whatever, and you're you're in the dark, and you've run away, and literally no idea where to go, and you are underground. And then something that you can't see starts gabbling some weird language that's mostly made up out of S's. Hmm. talking to somebody else, talking to itself, clearly in a weird kind of Stockholm Syndrome relationship with whoever it is he is talking to, my precious. And hmm. and it's just like, he's proper creepy, he really is. The, the interesting thing is that the drawing of Gollum and what happens in this scene uh, was rewritten when, he, when Tolkien wrote The Lord of the Rings. Oh, was it? I didn't yeah. know that. So in the original version what happens is Bilbo doesn't find the ring he he actually wins it in a bet with Gollum so when yeah. Gollum appears they have this riddling competition um, and and his prize for winning it is is the ring and they, they part on fairly amiable terms Gollum and Bilbo and Bilbo just wanders right. off them but obviously when uh, Tolkien came to write Lord of the Rings and he wanted to put this larger narrative around Gollum he had to change what happened so suddenly you know Gollum uh, becomes much more of a, a obsessive creature and yeah, the, the yeah. ring has a power over him which it doesn't in the in the original version I'd love to read the first version of it but um yeah, yeah it's interesting how the how that was how that was sort of tweaked and you had the bones of Gollum there in the original version but it, it is expanded on for for the reprints later on yeah. So, so, so what, what, what do you think of the riddles? I thought it was interesting, given that there's so much other stuff which is about kind of swords and sorcery and and kind of might, basically. That this is about wit, and it's like the um, it's like the way that Gandalf kind of gets them out of a scrape with the with the trolls is is by outwitting them rather than by just pulling out a sword and going, "This is called Goblin Spanker," and I think if I had I'm trying to remember if I did get this far when I was a kid when I read this, but I think I think I did, and I think I remember thinking it was one of the coolest bits. Which which one out of interest? Which one was your favourite riddle? Ooh, now there's a question. I really liked um, the one about time. Uh, yeah. I can't remember. I can't remember what the rhyme is for Got it, it. But it's don't you know, read it. Out? Oh yeah, go for it. Um, th- this thing, all things devours: birds, beasts, trees, flowers. Gnaws iron, bites steel, grinds hard stones to metal, slays kings, ruins towns, and beats high mountains down. Yeah, actually, see, it's, and first, beats high mountain down. Anyway, see, it, it, it's 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 first of all, it's great verse. Like you, it's another one of the examples where Tolkien's like clearly got how poetry works written mm. into his spine, and just really loves it as a way of putting certain things across. Like it brings texture to what he's trying to say. I think that's fantastic because um, I really, I really love seeing that done. Um, but I also really liked it because I got it halfway through. I got to admit, I felt a little inferior reading them because the way that Tolkien tells them, 
uh, almost after most of them, he, he almost apologizes for how easy they are. So, you know, I'm sure you, you, you've already got the answer because, <laughs> but you're, you know, you're sitting safe at home. And, you know, if you're under the kind of pressure that Bilbo was, you might have found it more difficult. And I'm reading a couple yeah. of them thinking, no, I'm finding it quite difficult as it is, mate. So <laughs> don't, you don't need to apologize or say how easy they are. Um, I, th- I like, yeah. I like the time. I like the time one because it's, it's the culmination of the uh, of the contest, really, isn't it? It's the one which Bilbo nearly loses on, and it's, mm. it really suits Gollum because it's so dark and such an it's mm. quite a really nasty riddle as well. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. about death and the, the you know the yeah. inevitable uh, decay of everything. So it's yeah, it's very Gollum. Oh, and it, you know, I'd never thought of this before, but you're right. It's this. It's very Gollum characteristic because time is what he's got both simultaneously bundles of and not enough of. You know, he's been holding the ring for this long that it doesn't give you more life, it just stretches out the life you've got over more years. Um but there was there's a good example of when Bilbo does his, his cheat riddle. Let's let's call it what it is. It's a cheat riddle. It says what have I got in my pocket? That's it's just that's, that's, just that's not a riddle. But, that's um, general knowledge at a push. <laughs> Straight, straight, quick as a flash. Um, Gollum shows the kind of outside the box thinking that most uh, business managers would kill for. Where he suddenly shows Hanses because <laughs> <laughs> his hands were in his pockets and went it go, which is a uh, it was quite a good it was a good effort by Gollum. It was he, he can go to the top of the class. Hmm. I I love I love by the way the idea that Gollum is a good example for the aspiring businessman on the rise. <laughs> Listen, I've got a book that you need to read. Members, <laughs> members of the Six Sigma fraternity, you need to, and it's it's outside the box, absolutely. It's a bit weird, but nobody got anywhere by thinking conventional, right? I want you to read The Hobbit. Stay with me. I want you to look at Gollum and think, how can I be more like him? <laughs> yeah, it's this it's this self help text called How to Influence People and Get Them to Do What You Want, or Creep Up on Them Without Them Knowing and Strangle Them. <laughs> <laughs> and and that is exactly how Gollum plans to succeed in business uh, this time. He's going to get this magical ring and come back mm. and use it to kill Bilbo. Unfortunately for Gollum, Bilbo's already got the ring, as we know. So he, I mean, this is a, a, actually I don't think he actually puts the physically puts the ring on himself. But the ring puts itself on hi, on him when he puts his hand in his pocket, which is it's yeah. this idea of the ring having a power of its own, isn't it? Which is expanded yeah. on in Lord of the Rings. Um, but it's the first time where Bilbo realizes that this ring can make him invisible, and it's a game changer, really, isn't it? Yeah, and and it changes the whole of the rest of the book. And I'd love, I don't know, like I say, I I I actually feel I know this is blasphemous for uh, for reading Tolkien, but I really feel like the ring is such an enormous plot, like MacGuffin, like a way of getting yourself out of a plot hole. It's like, how the freak am I going to make this little roly poly? useless sort of Hertfordshire resident of a middle Englander into an imposing thief who's going to go up against a dragon. I, I need a magic ring. <laughs> well, yes, yeah, so we, so we, he uses this, and this is the first time, this is the first example of him using it to, to get out of a very tricky situation. Because even though um, Gollum is a bit of a wretched creature, you feel that had it come down to a fight, he probably would have the better of it. He's nasty enough and he fights dirty enough to probably win. Absolutely. But Bilbo manages to get out of the situation using this invisibility ring. He gets away from Gollum, who leads him to the exit cut through Gollum's own paranoia. Effectively, he runs to yeah. to the exit to try and head off Bilbo because he thinks yeah. he already knows how to get out. 
which is yeah. just shows how mad Gollum is, really. And and then Bilbo <laughs> manages to avoid a collection of fairly useless orc guards who uh, who see him, and then he disappears again, and he just slips out of the door before they can grab him and haul him back in. Tell you what, tell you a question that occurs to me here is that how is it the goblins don't know these these creatures of malevolence don't know that there is a ring holding the essence of malevolence in their dwelling place? Like, mm. how do they not? How are they not drawn to it? How do they not know? Like, it's supposed to be like flies to poo, isn't it? So, <laughs> yeah. Like, well, I, I I don't know for sure, but I uh, there is this there's this theme in in Lord of the Rings where the ring decides you know chooses its master doesn't it and yeah, yeah i i sometimes wondered why it didn't just choose to to drop into the hand of the goblin at some, or you know just fall off uh Gollum's hand at some uh, finger at some point where he's just about to jump a goblin so he gets killed and the goblin yeah. gets the ring maybe it yeah. doesn't trust it doesn't want a, a, a slimy little minion to get its paws on, get its hands on it um or yeah. maybe maybe it would make a if if a goblin wielded it, it'd, it'd use it to become stronger than Sauron. I don't know, or to, to challenge it itself. There's nothing worse than a challenge from within, is there, for a dictator? That Absolutely. might be something with it. Dictators fear um, attacks from within, don't they, more than anything else. But yeah, so then, so then, Bilbo gets out of the mountain. Yeah, and we move on to chapter six, which is out of the frying pan into the fire. We start off with Bilbo on his own, and he comes across the group who've all managed to who've all managed to get out, and are luckily are just knocking around in the forest outside deciding what to do next and Gandalf wants to go back and get Bilbo and the dwarves are bad enough and they want to leave and uh, I'm going to do an Arrested Development reference here but Bilbo creeps up Gene Parmesan style and he, <laughs> he goes right into the middle of them and they go oh but, but Bilbo's not here oh am I and he, <laughs> he appears <laughs> in a flash <laughs> that's pretty amazing actually isn't it yeah, it is oh. quite funny. It's quite it's, it shows um, the sort of mischievous side to Bilbo as well, doesn't it? And uh, how he yeah. just feels like I'm going to. And it, to be honest, it's a serious point because he 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 does he does go up in credit with them by being able to sneak sneak past Thorin and, and uh, is it it's Balin he sneaks past, isn't it? And get get into the middle of the camp without them knowing. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. he's managed to escape on his own as well. So his cred goes up very quickly as well. So let's move on to the the last big action set piece of the. Uh, of the book so far before we come to the end of this cast and it's the wolves where they they, they wander through the forest and they hear the the wolves are coming uh, to attack yeah. and they decide that again really the, the dwarves aren't going to be able to handle them they're going to have to just bail up these trees to to, 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 <laughs> to get away from them so so there's this general panic as they all climb trees to get it to get off the ground uh, bilbo mm can't reach anything and he nearly gets caught but luckily he, he gets dragged up at the last minute and mm. then the wolves arrive and it, this this scene compared to the film this is this is one of the scenes which is completely different to the film isn't it because the wolves arrive and they wait for the because they're in sort of cahoots with the with the orcs they wait for yeah. the orcs to turn up later on uh and this felt like the backs were really against the wall when um gandalf starts firing down blazing pine cones at the wolves and that feels like it feels like a bit of a dumb move in a forest full of very flammable material but also it maybe just shows how desperate he is he's kind of running out yeah. of options here and uh, the orcs are coming down to cut cut it to, to cut the trees down once they once they arrive they decide to do that um 
we cut away briefly to the Lord of the Eagles sort of sitting on his uh, on his cliff going, ooh, what's going on over there with all the fire? And uh, that becomes yeah. relevant a bit later on. And we zoom zoom back into the action with uh, Gandalf's taunting the uh, the orcs. He's the, the ones because he does not do. give a single solitary shit no, about no, staying alive. No, exactly. <laughs> he, he's saying, "Go away, little boys," and all this. And yeah, you yeah. get a feel. This is this is this is a sort of Gandalf's last stand moment, almost, isn't it? He's about to. Yeah. He's he's about to just go down in a blaze of glory here. He's he's tried yeah. the. He's tried the pine cones. He's 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 tried various other things to try and get them out of it. Yeah, and you can almost hear it in his head. You hear him thinking, "Well, I mean, I've done the flaming pine cones. Yeah. I've I've done the taunting them like little girls. I've literally got nothing left. Yeah, self-sacrifice and, it is. In this th- this passage, yeah, exactly. This, this passage it says that then Gandalf climbs to the top of his tree. Uh, sudden splendour flashed from his wand like lightning as he got ready to spring down from on high, right among the spears of the goblins. That would have been the end of him, though he would probably have killed many of them as he came hurtling down like a thunderbolt. I mean, that is, you know, it's it's That's, really come to the end of yeah, the, you know, come to the end the, of the line. This shit just got real. Yeah, and I um, think Gandalf comes across to me in the books a little different to the to the film. He's, he doesn't have as much of this sort of uh, nice, sort of grandfatherly figure which, which Ian McCallum mm-hmm. brings to the role. There's more of this grumpy, world weary. Uh, like badass about him, where he's yeah. uh, he, he he feels a bit more to me like a, a really advanced, I suppose like the fantasy version of the single SAS soldier in the middle of a bunch of sort of more junior people, <laughs> and when it's sort of backs to the wall, guys, he can he can only do so much, and in the end, you know that's going to be that, and he's ready for it. Uh, to be honest with you, I I prefer the way McKellen does it. Hmm. I think like this. For all that this is seriously badass stuff, and for all that, obviously, uh, the idea of turning pine cones into incendiary hand grenades is right out of the SAS book of how to deal with forest warfare. Like, at the same time, it is a bit like... I, I don't know, like, the, the Gandalf that like, I'm seeing in this book is a bit too much of a, and then Gandalf did something and it was all alright kind of character, rather mm. than this kind of this kind of because he's got this whole thematic thing hasn't he Lord of the Rings where he's about benevolence and he's about you know the fact that even against unimaginable odds hmm. um, you know the, the 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 fundamental order of things is not purely evil hmm. um, and you know that because you've got this dude with a staff who can you know kind of you know, can do all of this amazing stuff hmm. um, I prefer Book Gandalf and it's because really yeah, I like this. I like the fact that he's is less perfect in this one. I find in the films when he gets short-tempered, it's kind of in the way a, a nice old guy does with daft young people acting up. And in in the books, he just gets short-tempered with everybody sometimes, and he is a bit grumpy yeah. and he, he he doesn't seem perfect. And I like those imperfections in him. One of the reasons why I like that is because in the Lord of the Rings, where Frodo offers Gandalf the ring and says you, know, you keep it keep it safe and he says oh, I, I don't trust myself with it and I believed it a lot more in the book because in the film he seems such a perfect character anyway whereas in the books you think yeah he, he's not he's not all there sometimes he gets angry and makes rash decisions you can see him acting you know making mistakes sometimes and I don't know I just like that flawed characteristic of him in the book 
I think I I think that's definitely a reading worth bringing to it. That's not what that's not what I see. I'm just an enormously McKellen fan. I'm unrepentantly a fan of films. So the the climax to this chapter is um, the they manage to get out of it not really through anything they do themselves, um, but the you the don't intervention... say again it's... really. <laughs> Yeah, another the... by good fortune way of getting out of seemingly unsurmountable odds. I mean, can can we call the the dwarves climbing the trees? Is this number three of them being slapped around like little bitches? Absolutely, absolutely. Go for... This is dwarf little bitch behaviour par excellence. <laughs> I suppose if you saw massive wolves going out of the woods, maybe you wouldn't stand and fight, and you think, well, let's buy some I time. Would... But you, you wonder what the what the end game is there when they decide to go up the trees. I suppose waited out for the wolves <laughs> yeah, to leave. But um, they get saved by the That's eagles. True. This is one where um, that when I saw it in the film, I thought, oh my goodness, this is ridiculous. It's, it's like it's fucking think, eagles again. Yeah, it was like <laughs> it was. I think it was like it was Gandalf effectively calling in air support like he was in Vietnam, and suddenly the <laughs> fast movers came in to take them away. But in Charlie in the book. Tango, <laughs> bravo, bravo! In in the book, it isn't so bad because I suppose you have this little cutaway where the you know the eagles just notice there's some something's up down in the forest and mm. they come down and then decide to intervene. But um, yeah, what did you, do you think? It's a bit of a a bit of a ghost in the machine, or did did you believe it? I like what I I really agree with you in that I like having that little cutaway, although it is like sort of transparently kind of <laughs> yeah. writing your way out of a problem that you're giving yourself. Um, and then some people we've never heard about before happen to be looking in that direction from a long way away. Yeah. I wonder if they'll turn out to be pertinent. But the thing I do like about it is that it establishes, it gives Tolkien an excuse to talk about how big this world is and to really have fun with the idea that these eagles who are enormous are up high enough to see a huge swathe of this world which which we now know has taken them... How long has it taken them to get to this point? It's like two months or something? Um, and so you have this this sense of these people who've been following them through like little granular detail and you know walking past every tree almost kind of thing, yeah. um, and then you've got these eagles far away who are far away enough to see it happening, and yeah. what would be a lot of travel for the for uh, for the hobbits and the dwarves it turns out mm-hmm. to be quite a short flight for the <laughs> the fifth armored air division <laughs> eagle brigade yeah um, of, of Middle Earth yeah. Um, so I, I I like that it allows him to do that because I think Middle Earth is is one of the biggest stars of the book and you know and and certainly of the films and the films mm. bring it out really well. I I would say in the books I liked it. I thought it was quite. By the time I got to the end of this chapter, I thought it was quite breathless and I was like, whew, wow, can't believe we got out of that. And I suppose you've got to leave a bit of incredulity at the door to to be able to do that. Well, I, I, but... Actually, Matt, no, I disagree with you entirely. I demand total unflinching realism from my stories <laughs> about halflings, dwarves, magicians, magic <laughs> eagles, rings with wills of their own, and little withered fellows who eat raw fish and live for thousands of years underneath mountains. Frankly, if you're not doing it right, you're not doing it right, as far as I'm concerned. Um, the, the, only, the only other thing to say, um, that I wanted to say about this, was the as, as they're getting saved by the eagles, Bilbo nearly gets left behind again. He has to cling to the to the legs of one of the other dwarves as as they get carried away, and it's like even the eagles can't be bothered looking out for Bilbo. It's so harsh. He's he, 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 there are certain points in the journey where you think, uh, if it wasn't for Gandalf, the dwarves would have left him ages ago. And yeah, yeah, even absolutely. in that situation, he's got to cut. There's a lot of a lot of this time. 
I think it, what it says is when you're on an adventure, some of the times, no matter how good natured some of the other people around you are, you've got to look out for number one because nobody else will. Is that that's that's like a really extremely politely put version of like fifty cents? Get rich or die try. <laughs> yeah, there is. Sometimes you just got to look after yourself. Players be tripping. Dave, get rich or die trying would be a great tagline for this book. <laughs> it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be the Hobbit there and back again. It should be the Hobbit. Get rich or die. Get trying. rich. <laughs> <laughs> get rich or get incinerated by a dragon trying right um that brings to the end the first part of our read through of the hobbit and uh the only other thing i wanted to talk about uh as, as a, actually in that last chapter is a difference to the film where obviously that that whole scene plays out differently and throughout the film there's this character which doesn't appear in the in the book I think it's mentioned once by Gandalf, and it's this this guy called Azog the Goblin who who kills one of who killed one of Thorin's uh, relatives, and he he gets promoted from in the books he's Azog the Goblin, and in the films he's he's called probably the greatest diabolical name ever, Azog the Defiler. <laughs> and you, you're thinking how are you going to get that into a, a pg certificate film for the kids <laughs> oh you're not you're just going to use overblown language all right i'm quite relieved about that to be honest and he's got the most diabolical accent as well it's such as the most it's like if you if you looked up evil accents you know what? And I, click I can't play. remember what his accent is what is his accent oh it, well, it's, i suppose it's not it's, it's his voice it's like Bring them to me. He's, he's like the guy, the Witch King in the films in The Lord of the Rings. Oh, that kind of voice. I see. Feast on his flesh. That kind of voice. <laughs> and it's just hilariously evil. And that... I just thought it's worth just a little nod to to say, yeah, this guy appears. He's a quite an important character in the films. Or he's a is is quite an, a striking character in the films. And he he, he just has a line in The Hobbit. I don't think they needed him in the book, if I'm honest. I, I thought he was like, No, I don't think they did. Well, because, because they weren't trying to they weren't trying to hit a three film release schedule where you need a primary antagonist for the first film. And if you're gonna release a trilogy of films, you know, and you're not gonna be too imaginative about it, then you need one of those who are gonna happen at the end of every film. Yeah. Um and so that's what Azog's Azog Azog and his defiling ways are for in mm. the film. Um and you don't need that in the book because you've got a dragon. Okay. <laughs> that's what I think. So, Dave, overall impression of the uh, of the first of, of this first sort of section of the book. It's the first third of the book, isn't it? Effectively, yeah. Um, what do you think? I think far be it from me to try and be like a smart ass and find some way that the Hobbit isn't a great book because it is a great book. I think I think that there are times where like the plotting is is a bit sort of oh, really like um but then you're not supposed to read a book like this with the kind of head on where you're looking for reasons to go uh well i see what you did there hmm. um i think on a much more much more basic level it is a fantastical tale i think it's uh incredibly well rendered and there are some real nuggets of absolute joy in there you know the creation of Gollum as a character bilbo as a character is fantastic yeah. The whole notion of somebody who's more comfortable with bacon sarnies and feet up in front of the fire than he yeah. is with travelling across the world, going and travelling across the world, I think is a great, uh, you know, is is a wonderful kind of image to give. I, I, I've got to say, I, I love the pace of it. 
um, at the start, especially. Oh, really? Why is that? It's, it's just, just, I just, I just really like the pace. It's, it's the action. It's action, action, action. They get to things. They do things quickly. They, they face Very threats. True. They move on. Uh, and I think that's the that's the real strength of a, a good adventure story, and especially a good children's adventure story. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I, I, I mean, it left me finish when I finished the uh, when I finished that last chapter out of the frying pan. It left me thinking, great, you know, what happens next? And that's the yeah, yeah. That, that's that's the great strength of a sort of a, an, an accessible fiction writer. That's the great strength, yeah. isn't it? You you want your reader to go. So what happened next? You know, great. Yeah. I can't wait to find out what happens next. So, uh, so that brings us to the end of our first part. Then, uh, thanks for sticking with us. Still. It's been it's been quite a. I mean, we, we, we've taken our time with it, but we want to really appreciate it chapter by chapter and really uh, enjoy the. Uh, each sort of each bit of the book and each change and it's just it's, it's a lovely book just to spend a bit of time with isn't it the the hobbit yeah so th- thanks thanks for sticking with us and we will be doing the second part very very shortly we'll divide it i think we were going to have to divide this into three because yeah. judging by how long how, how much attention how long it's taken us to get through the first part but uh They'll they'll be up on the on the site relatively soon. If you want to give us any comments or on the book or on what we think of the book or on sort of the cast in general, uh, do send them to sharkliveroilpodcast at gmail dot com. That's sharkliveroilpodcast at gmail dot com. We're going to be firing a few of these out quite quickly, so we won't be able to respond to feedback by the next one, but uh, we will do towards the end. Um, you know, as soon as we as soon as we collect a bit of it together. Yeah, and I think probably people are going to be able to, um, if you're listening to this and enjoying it, then um, send us in something, and we, you know, we'll we'll talk about podcasts two or three back in the sequence or whatever. Just mm. if you have a particularly strong opinion on whether the elves were worth uh, worth all the time that Tolkien spent on them, or whether they are just feckless twats, yeah, uh, you know, whether whether you think Gollum is a deeply misunderstood Freudian archetype, um, it's probably not the podcast for you, but um, we'd love to hear from you anyway. <laughs> Yeah. Um, um, yeah, get in touch. Uh, let's kick it around. Yeah. And uh, yeah, thanks very much. And we'll, we'll see you next time.